0: HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF.
1: to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all
2: with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Welcome, everybody. Another Friday afternoon is upon us. They, They seem to roll pretty quickly. I don't know about uh, yourselves but um, so before we start I uh, will warn everybody that this is for entertainment purposes only and that you should be getting investment advice from qualified professionals not the the four wags on this particular afternoon on a Friday and, um, yourself, <laughs> and and I would also add I'm really excited today uh, we have uh, Lynn Alden joining us, uh, probably one of the sharpest and uh, both both depth and breadth of knowledge in in today's world. Um, I think it's going to be an absolutely yeah, wonderful hour. And maybe if we go a little over an hour, I hope that's okay, Lynn.
3: We, that's we fine. Enjoy.
2: Yeah. That's awesome. Great. Yeah, thanks for having me. It certainly is a pleasure. And if, if those of you who don't know Lynn, by the way, uh, I would highly recommend you check out lynnaldon.com. If, if there is a, a website that goes from absolutely uh, soup to nuts on everything from what you might consider as a beginner and how to start uh, her start here page and then diving deeper and deeper and deeper. It is uh, pretty amazing what you've done there. Lynn, congratulations. And uh, I highly recommend that to anybody who's watching today as well. Um, and with all that said, Cheers.
4: Cheers, cheers. I just love nice. watching
5: Mike as like giddy, like a little girl with, with this. He, he's admires Lynn so much. And it's, but this, uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> True yeah, so boy. nervous and giddy I, I that, right, right. <laughs> so out of he's character. Awesome. From, that's only, right. Like, exactly. Yeah. Well,
4: you know, cheers, Lynn. So maybe for those that might not know who you are, the hand, handful that might not know who you are, maybe give us a little bit of your background and your general investment framework
3: yeah sure so i i actually come at this from an engineering perspective because i even though i've been investing you know since i was very young before i was an engineer uh when i actually went to schooling i went uh became an engineer uh and i went into first i went into industrial automation then i went into uh, aviation simulation uh and then uh, as an engineer i i I also developed on the side Uh, i continued investing and you know I, i had little websites along the way uh i got a uh, master's in engineering management and so I started shifting over to running the finances of an engineering facility more and more and and kind of seeing overseeing the day-to-day operations and kind of that, that quasi management/ slash finance role uh, and then in 2016 I founded Lynn Alden investment strategy uh, which is uh, you know a website that focuses on investment research for both retail investors and institutional investors uh, and uh, it, I guess one of the the main things we focus on is taking institutional level research but making it uh accessible uh to a very broad audience so you know ex- explaining things that can be pretty complex uh but in plain english and so it's not really dumbing things down but it, it's kind of just getting to the to the point or or you know purposely uh you know using language that you know people outside of wall street are are familiar with rather than kind of using uh, in in the in the industry terminology uh and so uh, my initial background, like my my earlier investments, uh, mainly focused on uh, equities and precious metals. Uh, but then over over the long run, uh, especially you know you know over the past like you know five plus years, I did I had to get more into macro uh, because we're in such a very macro-heavy environment that if if you were uh, not paying attention to some of the really big forces happening outside of individual stocks, it's really easy to get tripped up. And so uh, I described my my kind of framework as fundamental investing with a global macro overlay. Uh, And so a lot of macro investors focus on the really top level stuff. They don't necessarily go down to the, you know, individual companies and things like that. Uh, Whereas a lot of people that specialize in individual companies uh, don't, don't circle back up and go to the top layer. And so I, I try to combine those two layers and especially because I find that going down to that really deep level then circles back up and informs the the higher level macro view as well because I find things that I, I didn't necessarily, you know, would have seen uh, if I didn't go down to like individual companies.
5: Um, I, I would love to know, like, can, can you offer anything? I, I love that because it really is is distinguished, as you say, from from many macro managers and I'd love to just get... If, if you've got a handy example um, of how digging into some of the lower level fundamental stuff fed back into um, the macro framework, that I think would, would help to provide us with um, a, a roadmap of how you'd sort of generally, or one of the ways in which you sort of generally think about
3: um, the problem. Sure, a couple of things. Like one is, you know, uh, I've analyzed Japan, for example. Uh, and, you know, when, when a lot of macro investors or investors in general think of Japan, you think of a 30-year bear market. And uh, it's just this big, stagnant place. The GDP is not growing. The population is even mildly shrinking. And it's just it's the place where money goes to just go sideways forever. Um, but, you know, if you dig into individual companies and you start kind of looking in that market a little bit more closely, uh, you find that they're, you know, especially over the past uh, 10 to 12 years or so, they've been really doing a lot of corporate governance reform. Uh, And so they've, they've changed the way that they manage companies. And so uh, they've um, had this process where it used to be like a lot of conglomerates and they all own pieces of each other. And a lot of it's kind of very passively managed and just not really optimizing high returns on invested capital shareholder returns. Uh, But they've really made big progress uh, in moving those things around and, and kind of divesting things and, and really kind of refocusing the business. And so it's kind of like night and day compared to how it was 10 years ago. Uh, And so, uh, you know, going down to those individual companies and seeing you know what the CEOs are saying and looking at what is the what is the dividend done for this say particular company over the past twenty years? but how does the last ten years look a lot different than the than the ten or twenty years before that? and seeing that that change take place both qualitatively and quantitatively and saying, okay, so so Japan's not uh, you know it, exactly the same market over that whole thirty years. It wasn't like one big linear thing. there are a couple of different phases to the spare market. Uh, another thing, you know, example, you know, I because I go globally, I, I go to different countries uh, in terms of my investments, uh, and so I, I invest, for example, in Russian companies, and it it sounds spooky, like you know, investing in Russian companies, like you know, they're, you, you can have all these kind of ideas of what they are, uh, but if you go down to a couple individual companies and really look through them and look at their return profiles, look at their returns. Look at their dividend policies, things like that. Uh, it just gives you a, a somewhat different perspective than if you just looked at an index. Same thing if you look at the the broad emerging markets, say an ETF like uh, the EEM ETF. You just see this this big squiggly line, and you know you just if you're a macro investor, you're like, well, you know it's 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 going to be bad when the dollar's strong. It's going to do well when the dollar weakens. You're going to have these kind of uh, you know, a couple uh, you know lists of things that might make you want to get into that or not. Uh, but if you go down to individual individual uh, countries and especially uh, different companies in those countries, you can be like, okay, so you know this type of company looks actually really good. I love the valuations. I love the growth. I think the CEO is doing well, and so that can circle back and make you more comfortable with with at least you know certain types of emerging markets than if you're just looking at that that broad uh, ETF. Yeah,
5: that's really illustrative. Thank you. And we were
3: talking a
4: little bit about uh sorry, Mike,
2: yeah go I was ahead. Just gonna
4: ask her about uh, japanification, so maybe one of the reasons you've been studying Japan a little bit uh and correct me if I'm wrong, but is this because uh everybody seems to draw that analogy with where the rest of the Western world may be going to uh to maybe where Japan has been for the past twenty odd years and and how how has that informed your view? of Western worlds and some of the economic indicators that you think are relevant for us all to be watching at this point.
3: Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I've dived into it for two main reasons. One is just as an investment opportunity, it's, it's kind of a market that I, that I think is pretty interesting, uh, especially in the past few years. Uh, And then secondly, it also informs that broader view of, you know, what is inflationary? What is deflationary? What are some of the factors uh, involved? And so, you know, I think one, one, uh, I, I kind of call it a mistake where a lot of people look at Japan and assume that that's the natural end state for for uh, you know all, all developed countries uh, for better or worse. Usually they describe it as a as a bad thing. Uh, whereas if you go into the details, uh, it's it's you know it's not quite what people make it out to be. Another thing is that they often describe it as the, you know that Japan just prints a ton of money. And so, uh, for example, if you look at their their uh, central bank balance sheet. Uh, it actually, I actually, I think I can bring it up here because we, we talked about potentially sharing slides. Uh, so let me see if I have it. Yeah. So I'll share my screen here. And you, you see my
4: screen. Uh, yeah, there
3: we go. Uh, yes. Yep. Yeah, so you guys see this chart?
4: There you go.
3: yeah so you can see basically this is the this is the uh bank of japan uh you know balance sheet and uh it just went completely vertical here uh and uh so a lot of people describe that as well if japan can print an absolutely massive amount of money uh and not have inflation uh then you know that kind of shows that you know if if europe or if the united states does it uh, it's not going to be inflationary but it's a little bit more complicated than that and so uh uh, kind of diving into some of their mechanics uh, are, are things I've looked at. And so if you look at you know, that chart, it looks really parabolic. And, and indeed, uh, their balance sheet is now larger than their GDP. And so they own you know, something like 120% or whatever. I think 130% now of, of uh, the size of their GDP, whereas the Federal Reserve is more like 35% uh, of the United States' GDP. Um, however, if you look at their broad money supply – so the amount of money that's actually in checking accounts, in uh, savings accounts, in currency and circulation, uh, the broad money supply that you know all the corporations and people have access to, that's grown far, far slower than the United States over the past 10, 20 years. Uh, you know, per capita it's grown something like two point nine percent over the fa- over the past uh, 20 years. Uh, whereas the euro grew at you know 5.6 percent per capita or something like that, and the United States dollar grew at something like 6.2 percent per capita, so it's more than twice as as fast broad money supply increase as Japan, even on a per capita basis. Let alone uh, if you take into account population growth differences. And so, you know, just because that that balance sheet's going vertical doesn't mean that the amount of broad money supply is going vertical. And so that's one really big difference that people don't pay attention to. Whereas you know this year. United States uh, money supply went up 25 percent year over year. You know, in 2020, uh, you know, Japan and Europe, uh, you're you're looking at something like 10 to 12 percent. So you know, about half the rate, maybe a little bit less. Uh, and and so all of those environments are very different than they were over the past uh, 20 years, and especially compared to what Japan's been doing because they've been growing money supply very very slowly because there's not a lot of private credit creation. Uh, and also, there even their sovereign deficits, even though they've been somewhat large. They've been smaller than the United States in many years and especially smaller than the types of things that are happening now. So I don't necessarily view it as an ideal analogy for where a lot of these other places are heading other than that we are, of course, on a similar demographics trend. Another thing that's a, a big difference is that Japan has a structural current account surplus. Uh, and so you know over the, the decades – uh, they amassed a very big uh, trade surplus, so they, they, they exported more than they imported because they were, they were known for high-quality uh, industrial production, cars, and other things like that. Uh, and even as that kind of moderated in, in more recent times, now they have a somewhat more balanced trade situation. Uh, but due to years of doing that, they've accumulated a lot of foreign assets. And so uh, if you look at the net international investment position, uh, which is basically how much assets uh, foreign assets do Japanese people own? Uh, compared to how much Japanese assets does the rest of the world own, and by that metric, uh, Japan's the largest creditor nation. Meaning that, in absolute uh, dollar terms, uh, they own more foreign assets. You know, the, the amount difference between the foreign assets they own minus the Japanese assets the foreigners own is the biggest in the world. Uh, and even as a, as a percentage of GDP, uh, it's one of the largest uh, among major countries. It's kind of tied with Germany. And then it's only you know only countries ahead of it are like city uh, states like smaller things like Switzerland Singapore uh, Taiwan some of these really smaller more specialized uh, economies that are uh, you know a little bit less diversified uh, and so uh, in that sense it's it's very different than the United States which is on the total opposite side of that equation we have the we have the deepest uh, negative net uh, international investment position. Uh, drawdown. So we have, you know, we're we we're our net debtor nation. So foreigners own more American assets than Americans own of, of, of foreign assets. And we run uh, structural persistent trade uh, deficits and current account deficits. Uh, and so we're on the, you know, uh, kind of the opposite side of Japan there. Uh, and so I've also I've dived into periods where the yen strengthened or weakened. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with their, their current account surplus keeps the yen relatively strong, uh, all other factors considered. And so Uh, Basically, Japan has a lot of kind of unique attributes that don't necessarily translate well to the United States, for better or worse. Like, we don't have the trade surplus they have. We don't have, you know, some of the attributes they have. Uh, Whereas Europe, for example, does look somewhat more like Japan. They have the current account surplus. uh, They have the the more aged population. uh, But they have their own set of risks. So they're not monetary sovereign the way that Japan is. Ah, uh, because all of the countries have, you know, uh, uh, shared their currency, and so you have that that big difference between, say, you know, Germany and Italy, uh, whereas you don't have that kind of fracturing happening in Japan.
2: And so, is what what are the what are the downstream implications for that for Japanese asset prices uh, vis-a-vis, you know, sort of global asset allocation?
3: Well, so a couple of things. One is, um, uh, overall, uh, Japanese equities are actually pretty interesting. And so, if you look at if you look at the thirty-year bear market, it it bottomed really during that 2009 to 2012 period, uh, and then since 2012, it's actually been one of the strongest bull markets globally. And it's like the bull market no one talks about. It's just you know as the as their central bank balance sheet went vertical, uh, their stock market started going vertical. And so, uh, partly because the the Bank of Japan buys uh, you know Japanese stocks, but then the funny thing is they're not even uh, overvalued. Uh, and so if you look at uh, what most of their companies look like, look at their growth rates, look at their balance sheets, look at their you know, earnings and multiples, price to book, price to sales, whatever, whatever metrics applicable for that type of company, uh, they're actually pretty reasonably valued in many cases. Uh, and they have increasing corporate governance, and they've been through a multi-decade deleveraging process in many cases. Uh, and so overall, I think there's a decent opportunity there. Uh, and then it also you know, suggests that just because the Bank of Japan had very loose monetary policy for a long time doesn't necessarily mean that the United States can, you know, uh, do similar things and end up with similar deflation. Uh, So I think that that if if the United States takes, you know, some of these actions, uh, we're more likely to get this more reflationary environment for better or worse. And, uh, you know, one example I've used is that prior to 2020, Japan never ran a government deficit bigger than 8% of GDP, uh, whereas we just just ran a 15% uh, GDP deficit, and we're on track to potentially beat it this year, and with the Federal Reserve buying a lot of the bonds associated with that deficit, that's basically just a very different environment in terms of fiscal monetary policy than what Japan's done, because we're not just increasing our base money, we're increasing our, our broad money supply.
2: And and so do you do you start, is that, the, is that the first step in sort of saying, okay, here's a global macro, Japan's looking good? Uh, in comparison to other equity markets? And then do you take that next step and start to look uh, into individual stocks throughout Japan to find some particularly opportune va- value or particularly opportune sectors? Or what's the next step?
3: Yeah. So from there, I mean, I I a couple of things. One is I, I do an annual report where I, I look at over 30 different countries and kind of uh, keep a high-level perspective on some of them. And I update over the course of the year as needed, but that kind of gives like the the broad snapshot once a year. Uh, and then, in terms of individual companies, yeah. Then I want if a market's interesting, I say, okay, what are what are some of the top companies in the index? What do some of these look like? Because you know, it, it could look good on paper, but I actually want to go see what some of the country uh, companies are doing. Uh, and then, uh, so I kind of dig around and I see, okay, what are, what is the sector composition? So you know, is this particular country more weighted towards banks and and energy, or is it more weighted to technology, or is it more balanced? Like Japan's uh, economy is overall pretty balanced. Uh, you know they have they specialize uh, you know pretty heavily in industrial sector, uh, but they have a, a pretty kind of broad swath of exposure. Uh, and then, uh, you know, particularly for Japan, I'm finding value uh, in their value sector. And so, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that kind of sparked me to look more into it. I've been I've been tracking Japan for a while, uh, but uh, Warren Buffett made news uh, last year because he bought five uh, percent stakes in Japan's largest trading companies. Uh, and so, those for people that aren't familiar are conglomerates, uh, and they're they're kind of unique to Japan because they're they don't really fit neatly into any category. But they're they're kind of commodity producers that are also like industrial companies and logistics companies, and then they also own some like uh, local things that kind of uh, stabilize their cash flows. So, for example, you know, like one company might have a uranium mine in Canada. Uh, they might have some like copper deposits over in like South America. And then they'll have like a the second largest convenience store in Japan uh, and a supermarket chain, and it's all in the same company. And d- normally in most in most countries that would be considered a not very ideal business. Uh, it's, it's just kind of a, a cluttered collection of things. Uh, and in many cases that has been a problem for Japan. We have these kind of just like companies that that their assets are all over the place and there's there's no kind of vision there. But the interestingly the one sector where you actually kind of want that is commodities because commodities are such a boom bust industry. And so a company could be doing great, and if you know if they're a copper miner, and then copper is out of favor, and then they're just they're just killed for like a year, like a, a decade. They just can't make money. They they get into financial problems. They they destroy capital. Uh, whereas actually, if you had a, con- a a commodity company combined with like a supermarket, uh, you know, giving out stable cash flows, and it's actually pretty interesting. you know, one of the things they do is, for example, they'll source some of the agricultural products. And then they'll show up in their stores. And so they kind of have this weird kind of vertical integration mixed with this horizontal diversification that outside of that particular you know a culture, you wouldn't really want to see too much, but that they they managed to pull that off. And so I find a lot of those trading companies actually pretty interesting at the current time, especially because they have been improving their governance. Uh, and then there's other cases that are uh, trying to be less of a conglomerate. And so one of the, the popular examples is Hitachi uh they they're kind of the GE of Japan they they you know they're founded over 100 years ago uh with an, you know their first product was an induction motor uh so they were you know they're founded by an electrical engineer they've been heavily involved in consumer electronics and IT systems and all sorts of things like that uh but you know over the past uh about 10 years they've been uh divesting a lot of their non-core businesses and still planning on divesting more and so uh now they're really kind of doubling down on a couple of their core competencies competencies so uh internet of things for example and then uh things that work well with that so for example uh infrastructure projects generally you want to have a lot of sensors and, and and software to track uh you know the the status of that infrastructure and so that's a place where they can combine their mechanical electrical industrial uh with that iot uh emphasis that they're going with same thing for uh they recently acquired a big stake of ABB's uh, power grids business, and so they're heavily involved in electrical grids, which is probably going to be very important over the next decade as we get more and more electric vehicles on the road, and our our grid system is just not designed to handle uh, that sort of increased uh, usage, Uh, and so they're kind of emphasizing businesses that can benefit from their they, they call it the LUMATA platform. They have Internet, Internet of Things. They have software. They have uh, you know, AI. And it's basically a way to kind of uh, synthesize all this data together and make it available and, and kind of analyze it. And so they're really focusing on businesses that can make use of that. Uh, and then they're divesting things like their chemical business. Uh, they're all, also looking to divest their, their metals business, their uh, construction business, uh, things that are somewhat lower margin and that don't tie into that, that core area. And so th- those are the sorts of things I'm, I'm seeing, especially from these conglomerates, where some companies are making good use of the fact that they're conglomerates and other ones are shifting away from that that's, that more conglomerate structure.
2: Well, that's great. Now, how do you think about that in the context? Um, I- I've heard you talk uh, quite eloquently on sort of the inflations of growth and dyna- the growth and, and inflation, how those dynamics are interacting, how they uh, interact with. Uh, central bank policy with the U.S. dollar, petrodollar, H- how do you think about, so you've got this idea uh, culminating in Japan, and so you're now thinking about putting together a portfolio of sorts, and, and how do you think about that? And maybe maybe the place to start there is just going through sort of your top-down narrative and thinking about the dynamics that are at play in in the sort of the big moving parts of inflation and growth and liquidity and then, and maybe bring that back to how you would position Japan in that in that framework.
3: Yeah. So there are a couple um, uh, really big trends to be aware of uh, from the macro perspective. And so one of the biggest ones is the dollar cycle. Uh, and so ever since nineteen uh, early 1970s, since, since uh, the Bretton Woods system ended, we've had this system of floating exchange rates, where uh, you know instead of you know the dollar being pegged to gold and all these other uh, currencies being pegged to the dollar. We have the dollar, you know, floating against a, a basket and other other currencies floating against each other as well. But the dollar is the most important one because it's the global reserve currency, and uh, so that that's historically meant a couple of things. One is uh, almost all energy worldwide, until very recently, has been priced in the dollar, and so even if Saudi Arabia sells oil to France, they sell it in dollars. And so that means that every you know, every uh, country in the world that needs oil needs dollars. And so they either sell their some of their goods and services in dollars, or they 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 trade uh, you know their currency for dollars. Uh, and so uh, there's that. And then two, uh, you start to see that that countries uh, get dollar-based loans or 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 issue dollar-based bonds. And so for example, you have a company in China issuing do- dollar dominated bonds. Uh, even though the dollar is, of course, not their domestic currency, and so that's you don't see American companies doing that. Uh, you don't really see uh, Japanese, European companies doing that, but re- the rest of the world uh, heavily does that. And then even there, you know, it's not like all of those are then owed to Americans. I think that's a a big misconception: is that you know because they're issuing dollar-based debt that's owed to Americans, but that's actually not the case. They're often owed to Europeans. They're often owed to Japan. So you have a case of like Japan making a company in Japan making dollar-based loans. To a company in, in say Africa, and so it, it's a very unique situation. And you know, if anything, China has been a really big lender uh, in dollars to a lot of uh, frontier markets throughout Africa, uh, and uh, you know, uh, Latin America, places like that. Uh, and so you have the situation where, uh, if you if all they if they all borrow when the dollar's weak, and then the dollar strengthens for one reason or another, a lot of those emerging markets run into trouble because you know the the, the the uh, you know the the debt that those companies have relative to their local currency cash flows uh, you know goes up and so that that can be a big problem and, and, and result in insolvency and in some cases the governments themselves become insolvent and so we see these these really big kind of fifteen year cycles for the dollar and so the dollar had this big spike in the mid eighties uh, it had another big spike in the uh, late nineties early two thousands and then ever since twenty fifteen we've been in the third major dollar spike. Uh, and so you, if you look at the dollar over time, it's kind of this big sine wave that, you know, goes up for like seven years, goes down for seven years, and you have these really big cycles. And those are, you know, tied to major shifts in uh, U.S. fiscal monetary policy, uh, but they have kind of global uh, implications because of that, that big liquidity dynamic. Uh, and so normally during these weaker dollar periods, uh, you get, uh, you know, uh, kind of a, a global boom. Uh, you usually get a, a commodity uh, a bullish cycle for commodities. And then on the, on the other side of that, whenever the dollar strengthens, you usually get a, a slower period for growth, a more disinflationary environment, more of a commodity bear market. And then ironically, it, you know a lot of people think that a strong currency necessarily benefits that country. But for example, if you look at US corporate profits, they flatline for multiple years every time the dollar gets strong. Uh, and uh, you know it generally makes our trade deficits uh, blow out. Uh, you know even more than they already are kind of as a baseline uh, and so it, it's kind of been this interesting dynamic where uh, you know it, it whenever the dollar gets too strong it hurt you know for these weaker countries break first the ones that have a lot of dollar-based debts relative to their FX reserves but then that that trickles throughout the entire world including back to the United States uh, and then it usually forces the United States to you know shift uh, to a more dovish monetary policy more dovish uh, fiscal policy and then that alleviates the dollar and we kind of start the next down leg of that cycle and that that kind of next outlook. And so, uh, you know, really kind of paying attention to the dollar cycles and, you know, what things are overvalued. So, any sort of trend naturally kind of goes too far. And so, when you have a really disinflationary environment, you know, investors pile into to safe bonds, they pile into growth stocks, they pile into all these things, and they will they will get the valuations very high. On the other side of the spectrum, when you have a weaker dollar, when you have a boom of you know, investors pile into commodities and emerging markets and things like that and, and make their valuations too stretched and, and assume it's going to go on forever. And so, you know, in, in 2000, for example, we had the dot-com uh, bubble. And then uh, in 2007, uh, seven years later, we had emerging markets that were roughly as expensive as some of the dot-com stocks were. we have, if you looked at the CAPE ratios, the sickly adjusted price-to-earnings ratios of, of China or India, uh, they got pretty silly in, in 2007, and so it's no wonder that they've had this really big bear market, uh, in especially in dollar terms. Uh, and so basically knowing where we are in this dollar cycle and, and kind of you know looking at valuations of growth stocks, value stocks, and commodities and kind of looking for these trend shifts is, is kind of a big part of my framework. And then so overall, I view us kind of entering uh, most likely one of those weaker dollar periods, higher commodity prices. Ah, uh, you know, but the potential for uh, international equities to outperform U.S. equities, uh, potential for value stocks to outperform growth stocks, uh, and so starting from that framework, I've then kind of go around to different countries, including the U.S., and find uh, some of the best plays for that. And so, one of the troubles with commodity stocks is that because they're very boom bust, they're very aggressive. Uh, you know, they're not necessarily good long-term investments. They're more like a, a trading vehicle in some cases. Uh, whereas, for example, some of those Japanese trading companies, because they have some of those other stable cash flows as a ballast, they actually can be long-term compounders if they're managed well. And so that's kind of a more buy and hold way to express a diversified uh, you know pro-industrial pro commodities period of time. Uh, and so that that's one example. Same thing if you look at the Russian equities, you can say, okay, if we're going to have a, a decent commodity environment, if we're going to have potentially a weaker dollar, uh, you know what? What do some of these companies? Uh, you know how? How are they likely to benefit from that? Especially if they're they have pretty low debt, they have very low valuations, they're actually in many cases managed pretty well, and it kind of goes go down the list and find things that can either benefit from that, uh, reflationary trend or that pro commodity trend, uh, without necessarily going into some of the more aggressive things that are really kind of boom bust in, 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 in nature.
5: I like we that. seem to be at a um, uh, r- a real sort of fault line in the dollar regime as well. Um, there seems to be a battle going on at uh, at these levels in the DXY. Is, what, are you, what are you thinking or what are you watching for in terms of catalysts, either technically or, or fundamentally, um, as indicators that we may be sort of downshifting in the dollar and and, and that this new regime might be taking hold?
3: Uh, so, the, yeah, there's a couple phases. I turned dollar bearish back in October 2019. Uh, And that was because we had the repo rate spike in September 2019. And so uh, for people that aren't aware, I mean, we had a strong dollar since around late 2014, early 2015. Uh, We had this period. We had a briefly weaker dollar in 2017, but then it it got strong again in in 2018. And a lot of this was because the US was running pretty tight monetary policy. We You know, it's funny because we had near zero interest rates for most of that time. Uh, But, you know, compared to what Europe was doing, compared to what some other countries were doing, that was actually relatively tight on a global basis. Uh, And then, especially when they started doing quantitative tightening. So they were shrinking the Federal Reserve balance sheet while also raising interest rates. That was actually quite hawkish on the global scale. Exactly. And so we had this stronger dollar. Uh, and so that's you know, uh, Soros and Druckenmiller kind of identified that a while ago, that if you have a situation where a country has a, uh, you know, kind of a loose fiscal policy, so they're running big deficits, but they also have tight monetary policy, uh, that's actually pretty good for their currency until something breaks. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that was run back in the early 80s. You had, uh, you know, uh, Reagan ran pretty big deficits, but you also had Volcker running a uh, very extraordinarily tight monetary policy. And we had some of a, a, a less extreme version of that. Uh, with with uh, you know uh, Trump did stimulus, uh, so they had tax cuts and things like that. We started running bigger deficits. Uh, at the same time, as we had we had uh, you know uh, Powell at the Fed, uh, quantitative tightening and raising interest rates, and so we had that that strong dollar dynamic. Uh, but uh, in September 2019, that kind of broke, uh, and so what happened was, uh, you know the 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 rate uh, that financial institutions uh, you know uh, lend with collateral overnight. Ah, uh, blew out and it went up like seven percent one night. It, it like sprung a leak, uh, and so the Federal Reserve had to jump in and start lending in that market to drive that rate back down. Uh, and so there were a couple of us at the time that were that understood some of the dynamics that were happening there. And so I wrote that the Federal Reserve is going to have to start buying T bills soon. Uh, and so it, it's not really a repo problem. It's a it's underlying Treasury problem in the sense that there are all these Treasuries being issued. And foreigners were not buying treasuries because they generally don't buy treasuries in strong dollar environments uh, very much. Uh, and uh, you know, corporations were big buyers of treasuries briefly when they when they repatriated cash uh, because of the tax cuts. But then they when they plowed those the, those cash into uh, their share buybacks, they they drew down their T bill holdings. Uh, and so there's basically nobody buying T bills, and but there are a lot of T bills being issued, and so those were getting stuck in the banking system, and they were drawing down their cash and hoarding T bills. Uh, and so basically, uh, there just wasn't really that, that kind of, uh, you know, balance sheet capacity to keep doing that. And so the Federal Reserve had to start buying T-bills, and that marked a transition point between a very, very um, uh, tight monetary policy to quite loose monetary policy, because they're now expanding their, their balance sheet in, in economic expansion. Uh, and of course, when we, then we had the virus not that many months later, and so we, we temporarily got a strong dollar, because uh, again, you know, all these countries have dollar-based debts, and so if, if global trade just comes to a halt and all their, their cash flows stop, everyone has to, it's like musical chairs just stopping. Everyone has to scramble for dollars at the same time. And so we saw a brief spike in the dollar. But then when we saw the policy response to that, that gave us a much weaker dollar. So we're running loose fiscal policy and loose monetary policy, which is generally pretty uh, you know, weak for the dollar. Uh, and so that's kind of what I'm watching now. And then we, we, we've already come down pretty far. So that you know, the dollar index was like 99 when I started to turn bearish. We got as low as uh, you know in the upper 89 range. We bounced a little bit into the low 90s, and the key thing I'm watching now there, there's uh, one uh, you know the technical catalysts are I'm watching the 92 level, the 92 93 level kind of as the upper bound because that's kind of a previous consolidation level, and I'm also watching uh, the 88 to 89 range because that was the low that we hit back in uh, uh, you know late 2017. And it's also kind of roughly where we got to with this with this latest move. And so I'm kind of you know if we're in between that band, it's not very interesting. Uh, but if it starts breaking over ninety two or starts breaking you know below eighty eight, that's you know it's kind of a uh, kind of a continued uh, trend shift. Uh, second, you know about a month ago, I started to think that okay, we actually might get a tactical uh, bull move here in the dollar for a quarter or so because the Treasury you know was going to issue a ton of Treasuries, uh, and the Federal Reserve's only buying you know about a it's funny when you say it, but only about a quarter trillion dollars of treasuries per quarter. Uh, and so, but if they were going to, they were going to issue $1.1 trillion in net treasury. So let, let alone the gross treasuries rolling over, they were going to issue $1.1 trillion on net. And the Federal Reserve is going to buy like a quarter of those. And the question is, who's going to buy the other three quarters? Uh, and so if, depending on who buys it, that could actually be quite dollar strong because it, it sucks dollars out of the system. Uh, but, uh, that was when we had the, the transition from the Mnuchin Treasury to the uh, Yellen Treasury, uh, and they quickly revised that plan down and said, okay, instead of issuing 1100000000000 trillion, we're actually only going to issue like $250 billion. Uh, and so uh, that actually kind of changed the calculus a little bit for what this next quarter looks like. Uh, so uh, things like that that I'm, that I'm watching between that, that kind of what is the net issuance compared to how much the, the, the Fed is buying.
5: So how can, how can they run their deficits and their fiscal expansion without, um, without issuing equivalent treasury bonds?
3: Uh, so they're going to, uh, likely draw down their treasury general account. And so the, the treasury has a large account at the federal reserve. That's basically their checking account. Uh, and so, uh, if you look back over the past year, they actually issued more treasuries than they spent money out. And so. They they've they accumulated the largest ever TGA account, and so they usually, uh, you know, historically it's been below 400 billion dollars, uh, and even that was the high end of their previous uh, range, uh, and then uh, lately they got up to 1.8 trillion, uh, and now I you know last I checked it might be 1.6 trillion, but it's really it's really high up there, and so they they can pull down by about a trillion, uh, and so that's they they gave uh, year end uh, or quarter end targets uh, for where they plan that that TGA to be. Uh, and Mnuchin kind of did the same thing where they would say, you know we, we plan to end the quarter at like 800 billion, uh, but they never did. They just kept uh, issuing more. Uh, kept that that uh, level very high. Uh, whereas Yellen seems to you know by, by changing it and not issuing as much uh, and then you know uh, giving that target, there actually seems like they're going to draw that down this time and, and normalize that back down to you know that that you know probably a little bit above 400 billion. Uh, and so that's one thing they can do. However, if they were to, say, pass this $1.9 trillion package that some of the politicians are discussing, they're going to have to uh, go back to markets and issue more. Uh, that's basically saying for now, they don't need to issue as much because they can draw down from that, that cash balance.
5: So can we extrapolate then? I'm just going to work through the mechanics, see if I got this. So if they, if, if the fiscal stimulus package is considerably smaller than is being bandied about, they will not need – to go back to the market for um, as many treasuries and therefore they can draw down the treasury general account and the issuance will be lower and we could see a continuation of this downtrend in the dollar. But th- if they do pass the um, the larger end of the stimulus bill, they will need to continue to issue treasuries and we could see a tactical bull market in the dollar for a quarter or two while the market absorbs this new issuance.
3: Yeah. So that's, that's one of the key questions I'm watching because- as much as the Fed is buying, uh, and I had this discussion before when I was kind of debating with people about uh, you know the dollar strength. And so one of the things was that over the next couple of years, I expect the you know the the Fed to be one of the more aggressive in terms of expanding its balance sheet, but they won't be necessarily the most aggressive in any given quarter. Uh, and so in, in early 2020, they were by far the most aggressive uh, in terms of their balance sheet expansion compared to Japan, compared to Europe. But then as you got uh, towards the, the later part of the year. They've been on this kind of more steady approach of of buying, uh, you know, increasing their balance sheet by about 120 billion a month, which is funny because that's that's one of the most dovish periods in 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 monetary history, but it's actually like less dovish currently than the ECB, uh, and so it's also relatively dovish compared to the amount of treasuries uh, that are being issued uh, over the long run here, uh, because we're running, you know, in addition to un- unprecedentedly dovish monetary policy, you have even more unprecedented fiscal policy, uh, and so the actual uh, the issuance compared to that purchasing rate is actually you know, pretty significant. And so you know, if we get to a point where we have another quarter where it looks like the Treasury is going to issue, say, a trillion dollars in net Treasuries and the Fed says, OK, we'll buy a quarter of it, uh, you know, the other three quarters of it, like have fun, uh, private market can absorb that. Uh, you can get higher rates uh, and you can also suck dollars out of the system and that can stabilize the dollar and potentially shoot it up until you run into a problem of either treasury auctions not going very well or something blows out like a repo issue or uh you might have a liquidity event similar to q4 of 2018 where you know we had uh you know uh, the stock market fell 20 percent very quickly you had growth stocks fall even more like apple was off more than 30 percent very quickly uh you had no junk bonds issued for six weeks because credit markets you know is is that's a more severe problem than the uh, you know the the stock market is if the if the credit market's frozen, and so if you were to get some sort of issue like that, the Federal Reserve could have to, could potentially have to step up their purchases. Uh, but that's somewhat of an onerous thing for them because uh, that basically threatens their independence. And so you always kind of have this this fragile independence of central banks, uh, where you're not supposed to just you know do whatever the fiscal authority says and just monetize whatever they want to do. Uh, but they might find themselves forced to. And that's basically what they found themselves in back during the repo spike where they just had to, you know, go against their plan and start expanding their balance sheet in a economic expansion. And so they could find the same thing, say in in late 2021, where they, they prefer to, uh, normalize, uh, and instead they have to potentially buy more. And, uh, so, but they're probably not going to do that unless the market has a pain point or something breaks. And so there's that kind of that, that, you know, quarter or two period where you could have a stabilization of the dollar and you could have rising rates until it causes an issue somewhere.
5: So it's it's reasonable to think that we may see some sort of a sawtooth pattern in one direction or the other as as the there's this sort of rheostatic dynamic at play where the the um, treasury needs to issue they the central bank doesn't want to accelerate their purchases. They won't accelerate until there's some sort of catalyst in terms of some sort of crisis, um, which will sort of poke up in one of a few different areas, and then they'll be forced to intervene again, and then that'll that'll drive the dollar in the in the other direction, and so you can see this sort of imagine this kind of sawtooth pattern up or down depending on which way which way it breaks in terms of its longer trend.
3: Yeah, that's you know that's why I play it and it's you know you can only kind of look a couple quarters out because the, you know the amount of issuance and the amount of uh you know uh, uh purchases can change. So the the main variables I'm watching are uh you know if we if we do draw down that TGA uh and if they don't issue a ton that the Fed keeps buying a ton, uh we could have a renewed weaker dollar period for another quarter or two, which which would go against the previous plan where where the minutian treasury is going to issue a you know a ton of treasuries mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, if you then get to that period where we say, okay, we, we passed the 1900000000000 uh we we're gonna go ahead and you know for the next quarter we're gonna up our treasury issuance by a trillion. Uh, and if you start to see that at play, and the Fed says, yep, we're gonna sit tight with uh, you know a, 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 a quarter trillion in purchases per quarter. Uh, you know, I, I would start to kind of uh, potentially point to uh, you know at least the stabilization of the dollar and it's kind of play that over time and see if it if it kind of behaves as we think uh, and so, uh, you know, I think I, Druckenmiller did a great interview. Uh, the other—I uh, don't know if you got a chance to see it—he did an interview with Goldman Sachs. Uh, it was about 20 minutes, uh, and he had a, a similar outlook. And uh, you know, because he, he's—he said he's short the dollar, and he described it as kind of two things. One is, uh, you know, if—if if rates, he's kind of playing a couple of things. One is he expects rates to rise, uh, and because uh, you know, uh, he's expecting higher inflation and, and and rates to kind of go up. Uh, and so he, he's short the long end of the Treasury curve, uh, so he expects higher rates there. Uh, but then also he's he's concerned that the Fed will come in and just block those rates from going higher, maybe because there were increased purchases on the long end or something mm-hmm. like that. And so he's also long commodities, which would which would very much benefit from that trend, uh, and also being short the dollar would benefit from that trend. And so you can play in a couple ways and kind of kind of spread your bets out, because if if you expect significant fiscal stimulus and you expect uh, some degree of reflation, there, there are kind of a couple different levers you can play. So if the yield curve continues to steepen, uh, then banks can do pretty well, uh, and you can you can short treasuries or things like that. On the other hand, if the Fed intervenes more and keeps the, the yield curve flatter, banks don't benefit as much, but commodities and gold can do quite well, and the dollar can, can, can kind of have a, another leg lower, and therefore you want to be in emerging markets, you want to be in commodities – uh, and so you can kind of have that mix and say, okay, until we we get more clear about what the Fed's going to do, I can play all these different reflation trades and then kind of see which one kind of works out the best, which one ends up being the fastest horse there.
4: That dovetails, I think. I've, I wanted to understand how you see the role of the velocity of money in all of this, because I hear from a lot of the global macro crowd, everybody's sort of convinced inflation is coming. But- The devil's always in the details, and for some, it might just mean that the expectation of inflation over the next three, six, maybe 12 months is on the horizon, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to manifest. And so I wanted, maybe you might comment on how the velocity might play in, because unless we do have the velocity of money picking up or a dramatic increase in the supply of money, it seems like we might get these one-off Bouts of inflation, and they might get be benefited by the denominator effect that we, we're going to see from 2020, but not really a sustained rise in inflation like some of the narratives out there might uh, have us think.
3: Yeah, so there's a couple ways to look at it. One is for for inflation to be higher, uh, we don't necessarily need higher velocity; we just need velocity to stop collapsing. Uh, and so, uh, if you look at the 70s, for example, velocity wasn't particularly high. In fact, it was it was lower than some of the preceding decades. Uh, but mainly it was it was kind of like sideways and static, and then you had an increase in the broad money supply while velocity was pretty static. And so by definition, you had you had you know inflation. Uh, whereas what we've seen this year is we saw a rapid increase in in uh, you know broad money supply and a rapid decrease in velocity that kind of balanced that out. And so if we just see a stabilization in velocity, which we're, we're some cases we're starting to see, if you look at the past quarter, you see velocity kind of flattening out while broad money keeps increasing that's when you can get that, that more inflationary spike. Uh, you know, a second thing is, uh, you know, whenever you increase the broad money supply by this much, uh, I guess, take a step back, back further. There's kind of multiple definitions of inflation. And so different schools of economic thought, it's funny because it, they often talk past each other. Like, no, this is inflation. No, this is inflation. It's like, well, okay, well clearly we need a couple different terms here for a couple different types of inflation. And we don't have to argue about which one is the inflation. Uh, and so, uh, by some definitions, a, a, a big increase in the broad money supply is inflation. It's monetary inflation. Uh, and then so the question is, where does that inflation end up? Where does the, where does, if we print a lot more dollars and we all have more, I'm not talking about base money, but actual broad money, where does that end up? And so if velocity stays low, if inflation stays low, uh, and especially if a lot of that money goes to, uh, you know, the, the, the people that have assets or, or you know, towards uh, you know, the financial system. Uh, then it goes into assets. And so you see uh, you know, growth stocks do very well. Uh, you see real estate do very well. You can say bond yields can stay low, which means you know bond prices are still quite high. Uh, and so you see that asset price inflation. You can look at fine art. You can look at fine wine. You can look at classic cars. All these things are going up pretty dramatically. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, if you were to get higher velocity, if you were to get uh, supply uh, constriction, either due to the pandemic or other issues, and you start to actually see inflation, uh, then it can show up there instead. And so the the short answer is that when you have an increase in broad money supply, it shows up in whatever is scarce. And so lately, that has been uh, high quality financial assets, things like like, like treasuries or uh, you know growth stocks or uh, real estate or wine, things like that. Uh, and it, and it's it's really poured into those. Uh, and we're also starting to see commodity uh, inflation. We're starting to see you know copper and 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 beef and you know, soybeans, grains, exactly. A lot of these have gone Big straight grains. up. Yeah. yeah, lumber, lumber doubled and is like, uh, you know, uh, all time highs. Uh, and uh, so we're seeing that. But that's being somewhat offset by, you know, uh, rents are very low, especially in cities, because, you know, you can barely collect the rent anyway. Uh, and so we have that kind of uh, that kind of dichotomy going on where currently we're getting this these selective areas of inflation and other areas are more deflationary. And so the question is, as this this normalizes a little bit, but as we're still doing stimulus, will it continue to be where it is now, or will it pour more into actual broad inflation? And so I think that's kind of a key thing to watch.
2: How, how do you think um, in, in that um, in that view? How do you how does gold and silver play a role? How are they a bit different and unique, and even uh, Bitcoin, if we will?
3: Sure. Uh, so. If you look at gold and silver, gold is a somewhat more disinflationary asset, uh, and silver is a somewhat more inflationary asset. But there's a, there's a couple of caveats there, and so the main thing about gold is that you know a lot, a lot of people try to categorize what exactly is it, uh, and uh, the main thing that it follows is is real interest rates. And so the the inflation the the nominal rate of a ten year treasury minus inflation. Uh, and uh, so for example, if you have high, if you have pretty high inflation, like if you if you have four percent inflation. Uh, but treasury yields are are yielding seven percent. Uh, then actually, it's not a great environment for gold because if you could either hold gold and collect no yield, uh, or you can put your money in a treasury and you can get a three percent real return. Uh, and so gold becomes rather unattractive, and that's kind of the situation you saw throughout the 80s and and uh, 90s, uh, where where gold was in this kind of two decade bear market uh, because you had positive real yields. Uh, whereas if you see uh, you know negative real yields. Uh, that's like you know, it's quite good for gold, and that can happen in two directions. Either you can have an inflationary spike uh, that 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 nominal yields don't keep up with. And so, for example, in the '70s, gold had these these two really big spikes. One was in the mid '70s, one was at the at the tail end of the '70s into the really early '80s, and that's when you know real yields went down as low as negative four percent because uh, just yields weren't keeping up with the inflation that was happening. On the other end of the spectrum, what we saw. You know, the, the gold had a really big bull run in 2018 and 2019 uh, and into 2020. And that's because you saw real yields collapse due to disinflation. And so at the end of 2018, uh, 10-year treasury was like, you know, uh, over 3%. Uh, inflation was like 2%. So you had, you had 1% uh, positive real yields. And then over the course of those next two years, uh, you saw uh, uh, nominal treasuries fall down to like half a percent. Uh, and inflation fall down as well, but not as much uh, because they had less to go. And so you, that that dynamic fell from positive 1% to negative 1%. And that, that's like rocket fuel for gold. And so gold did very well. And then since that uh, kind of August 2020 period, because we've had a rising 10-year treasury that's kind of rising with inflation, we've had those real yields kind of stabilize at about negative 1%. Uh, and so gold's been on a, on this correction. Uh, whereas silver, uh, you know, it's kind of been the opposite dynamic. So it really kind of it didn't really have as much of a bull market in that 2018-2019 period when you had slowing global growth. Uh, but and then of course when we had that big liquidity shock in March of 2020, uh, you know, silver just utterly collapsed. Uh, but then when we came out of that with this more inflationary kind of policy, silver outperformed from gold from that point. And so that's because we're in a more inflationary environment to some extent, especially for commodities and for uh, monetary assets. Uh, and so, in that dynamic, silver tends to do somewhat better. And so, if you have the higher inflation, you can generally expect silver to do a little bit better, whereas if you have that that more defensive pullback, uh, that more disinflationary environment, you can generally expect gold to do a little bit better. Uh, but either way, it's going to depend on what real rates are doing.
2: And the new entrant?
3: Uh, so Bitcoin <laughs> yeah, Bitcoin's on its own pace because it's you know because it's undergoing a period of adoption from no one having it, to like you know a couple million people having it, uh, to now Tesla has it. Like a, as you go up the route, however high it's going to get, uh, it, it's been on this kind of S curve of adoption, uh, and it's become more mainstream and, and more institutionalized. Uh, and so it it also it operates on these four year cycles. And so every four years, Bitcoin's uh, supply generation gets cut in half. And so a, a number of new Bitcoins are generated every day. And every four years, that has a pre-programmed period where that issuance rate gets cut in half. Uh, and if you have static demand and supply gets cut in half, then that tends to start pushing the price up. And then you have momentum traders jump on board, and then that pushes the price up more. And then you have a blow off top, and then it goes to another multi-year consolidation. And then a supply cut happens, and then it it does it again. So if you look at the the four year, look at the 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 twelve year history since inception it's really kind of divided into these 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 four year periods. And so the, the bull market we're seeing now is strongly correlated with the halving event that happened back in May, 2020. Uh, and if history is of any guide, it probably has further to go, uh, but then it'll hit some, you know, blow off top and some period of consolidation. Uh, but it's also, it's prone to some macro issues. So it's, it's, it's kind of mostly on its own beat there. Uh, but then, you know, it, when you had, for example, a liquidity crisis in March, 2020, that hit all asset classes, especially some of the more volatile ones. And so Bitcoin sold off. It had nothing to do with kind of its own cycle. It's just anybody who, who, you know, as a dollar spiked, they needed money. So you had a crash in silver. You had a crash in Bitcoin. You had a crash in stocks. Even even Treasuries, the worst point, started to fall. And so that's why I'm kind of doing that. It's really on its own thing. And it's more about, uh, you know, to what extent is that network effect going to continue or, you know, is that network effect going to kind of taper out and kind of hit a peak somewhere?
5: Speaking of liquidity crises um, and the fact that everything, including Bitcoin, got sold off it toward the end of March, for example, um, when there was just a global collateral call. Um, how do you think about hedging this sort of liquidity tail? Um, I mean, the, the, the macro framework is is consistent and i think the pieces fit together really well that the the sort of relief release valve there is um another major liquidity shock how do you how do you think about hedging that
3: uh so one is by by maintaining a cash position uh and so even though i'm, I'm bearish on cash with like a, a five-year view uh because i think we're going to be in a period of persistently negative uh real rates for for cash and t-bills uh, in those types of environment, uh, that's one of the best assets to have because everything goes down relative to to cash and T bills. Even in the, the worst parts of that 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 sell off, even long duration treasuries ran into a problem there. Yeah, uh, even it was less severe than than some other assets, but it was pretty bad. And so really, it was it was cash and T bills that hold up. And so uh, if you were to get that liquidity event, that's what I want to have. Also, you can do it by by being unlevered. And, you know, depending on what type of, of book you're running, if you were to get that advantage, you have some cash and you have an unlevered book, you can then deploy some cash. And if you want, you can deploy some leverage into things that just got, you know, became a bloodbath and a liquidity crisis. And so that, that's kind of the main way i play it. I mean, depending on what kind of fund you're running, you can be in a long volatility fund as well. You can, you can basically do things that would benefit from a spike in volatility. That'd be another hedge you can do. Uh, so I think those are kind of the, the main ingredients there. To You can also be long the dollar uh because if you were to have that that issue uh specifically you know in terms of cash it'd be the dollar most likely that, that does quite well
4: apart um, from the swiss franc and the japanese yen i guess which tend to always spike in these uh, risk off environments i guess
3: they they do the- well also yeah but it, the funny thing is even in, i mean in march because everybody needs dollar at the same time uh even the dollar spiked even relative to some of those but yeah you you generally would want to be in dollars yen and, and Swiss francs, and you wouldn't want to be in emerging markets currencies.
5: I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of the potential political externalities that might um, fall out of some of these extreme um, fiscal actions. I mean, we're already seeing a lot of sort of civil breakdown in, in a lot of places. Obviously, populism has been on the rise for three four years. Um, how do you see some of these dynamics playing out, and and what are some of the long tail potential outcomes from um, from this political climate? Do you think? And if yeah. I may
4: throw in just quickly, MMT, the term there, and if you might comment MMT in the context of Adam's question.
3: Yeah, so I think I think we're probably on a track of more of these MMT like policies because, you know, if you look at history, uh, there's these big kind of cycles. Uh, for wealth concentration, uh, and so uh, if you look back in the in the 1920s, for example, uh, wealth got very concentrated, and then when you had that big bust, uh, you had a rise in populism, uh, and then you had FDR-style policies to try to you know uh, you know kind of cycle some of that wealth out, kind of stimulate their way out of it uh, to the detriment of uh, you know currency and bonds, and so it was, it was a currency devaluation in exchange for other benefits as as they saw fit, and of course. Then they were forced into spending by the war in the 1940s uh, and that's actually in some ways when they really stimulated the way out of it uh, by you know really kind of uh you know uh, taking their, their currency out of the woodshed and so uh, we're kind of in a similar environment where we had this period of, of rising wealth concentration uh, and it, it, it culminated in a couple of things one was we had the big subprime crash so we recapitalized the banking system and then we've kind of like our economy's limped along since then it's actually been running at a pretty Pretty slow pace, even though the the stock market makes it look like it's been doing very well. Uh, a lot of those are actually benefiting from disinflationary trends. These really highly valued growth stocks, uh, whereas like the 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 more cyclical economy or the more the the more real economy has actually been really kind of stagnant for the past decade or so. Uh, and so we've had a lot of frustrations underneath the surface, especially because as we talked about earlier in the United States, we run persistent trade deficits, and so we've really exported our supply chains. Uh, in a more aggressive way than than say Germany or Japan have, and so a lot of our uh, you know people just don't have uh, high quality work either. They don't have work at all, or uh, their wages are pressured uh, from foreign competition. Uh, and so, if you look at say different ways to measure wealth concentration, the United States is more concentrated than most other developed countries, and so we're we're somewhat more vulnerable to uh, that populism because if if anyone who worked in the past forty years or so uh, in, uh, finance or technology or healthcare or government, uh, you did pretty well. Uh, you, you got a lot of benefits from, uh, you know, that this, this regime we've been in, uh, without any of the downsides. So you've had a strong dollar you've had, you know, you benefit from cheap foreign goods, your job's not affected, you're doing great. Uh, but if you make things, if you physically make things, uh, you, you, you generally had more downsides to that system than, than upsides. And, uh, there's been this really big kind of, uh, you know, uh, the pendulum swings back and forth and so uh, in, in the you know the 60s and 70s labor had a lot of power and you know in, in more recent decades capital has had a lot of power uh, and that you know each time it generally goes you know too far and, and breaks something and then there's there's societal pushback and so if, if 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 unions get so strong that it kind of chokes the system then you have this pushback against unions and then if you get to the other end of the spectrum we have this these these uh, you know kind of corporations and you have a lot of people struggling then you get you get pushed back in the other direction. That's what we're, we're kind of seeing now. Whereas we're you know we're seeing uh, a flat job recovery, but a roaring stock market, uh, and we're seeing all these 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 kind of aid bills to, to keep coming in. And it's interesting because you see populism in all these different angles. So you have you have populism on the left, you have populism on the right. Uh, you you can you, even Bitcoin is for is type of kind of technical populism. It's a way of saying we want to go against the existing system. We want to we want to do it with software. And so you have all these kind of different uh, paths towards populism, and I think a lot of it ends with uh, probably running very large uh, fiscal deficits, and and the currency kind of taking the brunt of that. where you are going to have persistently negative real yields for quite some time, uh, and so people that are that are holding treasures or bonds or are, are paying for it one way or another, uh, whereas uh, you know if you're on the on the receiving side of that, uh, you can generally benefit. And so it's it's kind of. A tumultuous environment uh, if you're trying to navigate different assets that you can invest in
2: can, can you extend the, the discussion to on the u.s dollar maintaining its reserve currency status given its shrinking size from an economic perspective in the world so i think that's a an extension of the point you're making as well or could, could yeah. be
3: yeah so one thing we've seen is that uh you know i mentioned before that that you know, for most of the past 50 years, all global energy is priced in dollars. Uh, and uh, that worked for a while because when that system started uh, in the 70s, the United States was like 35% of global GDP and we were the largest importer of energy. Uh, and but over time, uh, now depending on how you measure it, we're between like 15 and 22% of global GDP. Uh, and China's a bigger importer of energy than we are. Uh, and so it, it's really hard to run a global system. Of all oil being priced in dollars, if if you know the United States is a shrinking share of the global pie uh, because other countries are you know growing faster than us, we're only like, you know, say we're like, you know, twenty percent of global GDP. We're like four or five percent of the population, so that's actually still pretty good. It's just it's it's not big enough to kind of you know, you know kind of account for the entire global oil market, and so we're starting to see, uh, you know, in addition, we've also used those sanctions pretty aggressively at some countries, and they say. Okay, just because we're tired of this kind of boom-bust dollar dynamic, and we're also we don't want to be able to be sanctioned, you see an increasing number of countries go around the dollar system and say, okay, we want to pay in euros, or we want to sell oil in euros. And so we've seen uh, Russia, for example, um, Russia, for example, has been aggressively de-dollarizing and selling oil in euros. Uh, So we've seen trade between China and Russia become more diversified in terms of it used to be almost entirely dollar based and now it's it's you know the euro shares bigger than the dollar. They're also using a little bit of their local currencies. We're also seeing uh, trade between Russia and Europe is increasingly uh, you know shifting towards the euro. We've even seen uh, trade between Russia and India has uh, shifted more towards even towards the Russian ruble in that in that particular arrangement uh, but overall becoming more diversified. And so overall the way I see this playing out, is that the United States is really just no longer big enough to be the only currency used for global energy pricing, and so we're we're now kind of shifting towards a more multi-currency energy pricing regime, where you'll have the dollar able to buy oil, you have the euro able to buy euro uh, oil. We've also seen uh, you know the the, the the futures on in, in Shanghai, uh, you know uh, yuan yuan-based oil uh, that's been uh, pretty high volumes. So you know probably at least those three currencies over time they'll probably have increasing ability to to buy commodities and oil. And so in that sense the dollar will change from being the global reserve currency to one of the global reserve currencies or you know we'll will shift towards a a, a kind of a, a status of having these regional reserve currencies rather than just one uh, to kind of rule them all.
5: I can see it's that being interesting. a stabilizing mechanism to diversify the value of the different reserve currencies, but I I wonder how quickly that can happen. I mean, you you need to recycle a lot of uh, euro petrodollars and, and yuan-based petrodollars um, to build up reserves and in, in order to allow those to be used as um, like swap collateral the same way the dollar is. So I, I, this is sort of a long-term play, I guess,
3: right? Well, it's both there's parts of it are short-term and parts of it are long-term. And so, for example, if you look at how quickly the trade between China and Russia – uh, de dollarized It was actually happening. It happened very quickly, it, it, like especially like a two-year period there where it just went from like 90% to like 45%. Uh, you know, it basically overnight in the macro sense. Uh, however, uh, reserves change more slowly, and so China, you know, they reached like well over a trillion dollars in reserves in, in U.S. Treasuries, and then they started kind of over time gradually tapering that down and not recycling those in as fast, and instead using those for other things. And so. I think we're seeing a, a gradual shift, a gradual diversification of reserves, uh, especially because uh, we do have a collateral issue. Because in in Europe, you don't have a euro bond. Uh, you know, you, the closest thing you have is 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 you know German German bonds. Uh, you don't have that that shared uh, you know environment, and so that that market's only so big uh, because they're not going to hold their reserves in like t- Italian bonds, for example. Uh, and then uh, China also, you know, they have a more restricted bond market, and so. That's one of the biggest shortcomings. One potential option that we're seeing somewhat is that uh, central banks have been somewhat buyers of gold over the past five years. Uh, and so one way they can do it is to separate the medium of exchange from the store of value. Uh, and so in addition to holding their reserves in a, in a foreign sovereign bond, they can also hold their reserves uh, partially in gold. Uh, and so by, by you know, using a little bit less dollars, drawing down their dollar percentage a little bit. You know, perhaps increasing uh, you know uh, some of those other currencies slightly, and also increasing gold slightly. You kind of slowly decentralize it and, and smooth it out over time.
4: I wonder how that might play into the whole idea of currency wars, which has been a term that's been thrown around in the last decade. And as these other currencies become more relevant in the trades amongst these other countries, uh, that also goes against the economic impetus of. A lot of these exporting countries, particularly. And so that dynamic against the, the 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 weaker dollar, perhaps the US might favor that environment to some extent. But on the other hand, I don't imagine some of these other countries and central banks just sitting around and watching their currencies become stronger and then causing their economies to uh dip into a recession or at least a deheat to some extent. So that dynamic would be interesting to play out. And I think that also plays into the crypto bullish case, which I think you've, you've somewhat made here.
3: Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the kind of interesting things to watch is that the games, the game theory is so complex between all these different uh, environments. And so for example, when you saw the dollar weaken in 2017, for example, we had, we had a a pretty big weakening down from the dollar index was over hundred and then it fell a little bit below 90. Uh, And uh, so you would think that some of those exporters would run into trouble, uh, but it was actually quite the opposite. Where you know Europe, for example, had one of its fastest growth rates, and that's because, in many ways, that that dollar release valve, you know, gave emerging markets a boom. And then Europe's a big trading partner with those emerging markets, and so it, it can hurt their their it, you know Mercedes are less competitive in the United States, for example, when the dollar weakens. Uh, but they're potentially more you know they're selling more to China, as an example. And so you have that that kind of a, you know multi pronged, multi party dynamic rather than just kind of a two way thing. Uh, but it is true that they you know I guess if you're if you're the ECB, you want to see the dollar weaken compared to other currencies, but you don't want to see your euro strengthen. And so you have this, this competitive currency devaluation environment. And I mean some countries have been more aggressive than others, and so Switzerland's been a particularly aggressive uh, you know devalu- like they they try to keep their currency from appreciating. By like just buying as much foreign assets as possible, and so that that's one example. Uh, the ECB has been less extreme than that, but they've been they've been uh, pretty aggressive as well. Uh, and one thing to kind of look at is that it, in an environment where multiple currencies are trying to weaken, the one with the biggest uh, structural current account or trade deficit tends to be the one that has that has more to weaken. Uh, and it really, actually, going back to Japan, if you look at their you know when their balance sheet went vertical. Uh, you know, at the time, the yen was pretty strong uh, because they were experiencing disinflation. Other other countries, you know, there's all these issues around the world, and so Japan just ramped up their balance sheet. And at first, you actually did see a pretty quick decline in the yen. Uh, so the yen fell versus uh, dollars a little bit compared to euro, uh, and but then uh, in 2015, uh, it just stabilized. And then even though their balance sheet never slowed down, kept going vertical, uh, the yen just kind of leveled out. And even began strengthening uh compared to the dollar and if you look at what happened at that time their their trade deficit balanced out and so back when they started that process in 2012 they had a pretty rare trade deficit which is uncommon for japan they were in a a particular slump uh, partly because their currency was so strong and then when they dramatically weakened their currency uh, by ramping up their monetary policy uh, it did weaken it but once the trade situation balanced out uh, it was hard to weaken it much further uh, and so uh, even though they continue the policies, you just had a stabilization and so that's it, it basically if you have an environment where multiple currency blocks try to weaken uh, the one that's you know quote unquote likely to be the winner is the one that's running uh, large twin deficits so it's 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 running big fiscal deficits and it's running these 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 structural trade deficits so overall in that environment, I still think the dollar would weaken more uh, but overall kind of the best winner overall would be hard assets that they kind of benefit from all of them uh, kind of weakening.
4: Scarce assets, gold, precious metals, potentially crypto. But I wonder, there's been a pretty uh, heated debate of late about regulatory concerns surrounding crypto. And why would the US or any other sovereign for that matter, give up the uh, the privilege of seniority and just printing away uh, out of this mountain of debt, which seems to be the one solution that they have and to inflate away this mountain of debt. So how, how do you think about the, the this risk of uh, additional and potentially more draconian regulatory clampdown?
3: Yeah, so we're seeing that in the past couple of weeks in Nigeria and India uh, where they're uh, you know they're they're pretty afraid essentially of Bitcoin and uh, how that could be competition for their currency. On the other hand, we've seen more and more acceptance in the United States. Uh, and so for example, we just had the Bank of New York Mellon announce that they're going to custody Bitcoin, which is the oldest bank in the United States. I mean, they're the bank of banks, basically, you know, that they're, astonishing, uh, actually, yeah,
2: and they're super old and their tech reflects it. Yeah. I mean,
3: yeah. not yeah. that we've yeah. deal dealt them with their custodial ever, department,
2: not that we, yeah. we don't deal with them or. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, even them, like uh, uh fidelity, they've been in the game for a couple, you know, several years now where, you know, they're, they're well respected uh, asset manager. Uh, and they're, they've been in uh, Bitcoin pretty early. So actually it's, I've made the argument that the bigger it gets, the harder it is for these major capital markets to ban because if, you know, at the moment Bitcoin's almost a trillion dollars in market capitalization. It's over 8 or 900 billion depending on what price it is. You know, it could it could be up 10% could be anywhere course. right now. Yeah, but so whatever it is, it's you know it's, it's over 800 billion most likely. Uh and so uh you know that's that's a lot of assets, a lot of that's owned by Americans. And so uh you know there's somewhat in a corner there for for outright banning it whereas uh, some of these other countries that are more desperate have an easier uh, you know, a time at least trying it. Uh, generally speaking, though, uh, it doesn't work very well because it still trades in the black market anyway. And so, for example, some of these countries ban dollars, or they have an, a quote-unquote official exchange rate for the dollar, uh, but then the the real exchange rate uh, is is in the black market, uh, where you have okay, here's actually what you know if, if two people are kind of trading dollars for something else, that's actually what the exchange rate is going to be. Uh, so there's that. Uh, And then two, uh, they also kind of fall behind in innovation, right? So we have, you know, all these other, you know, the largest bank in Singapore is also doing custody now. Uh, And so if you have these countries say, okay, we're just going to ban our citizens from owning it and we're just going to kind of close ourselves off, it's like, you know, good luck because you're going against uh, kind of in some ways a currency that's designed to operate well in the black market if it has to, uh, while other countries are embracing it legally. And then, you know, so we saw, for example, India uh, tried to ban it a while ago, and then their 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 Supreme Court kind of overruled that. And so this will be their second attempt that they're trying now. Uh, it might be more successful, It might not be. Uh, and so I do think that watching the regulatory front is important, uh, but especially in these these kind of well capitalized markets, it's it's somewhat less of a risk. It's also, you know, if you look at you know where money stored, uh, people already store their money outside of the the banking system. They store it in real estate. They store it in equities. They store it in gold. They store it in all these different things. And Bitcoin is, is just one other thing that they can store it in. And so ironically, by trying to ban it, they're basically arguing that it's better than all of those. They're saying that's the one that we're afraid of uh, because it's a mobile store of value that, you know. So it's, it's funny because you see these narratives of people saying, oh, it's a bubble. It won't amount to anything. On the other hand, sometimes the same people are saying, oh, governments are going to ban it. It's too powerful. And it's well, which, which, like, which one is it? Is it's either... If it's a bubble, it'll just. You know, if it's bad technology, it'll work itself out eventually. Uh, or if it's a, an actual threat, it, it's pr- you know it's a particularly challenging one to stop because you can ban people from owning it, but you can't actually shut the system down.
5: What they can do, I think, is change the tax regime on it, right? And they could recharacterize yeah. it as a currency, and um, then cause people to have to pay tax on it, tax on gains every year, and, and liquidate you know, other assets in order to, to pay those taxes, which would be an interesting shift in in dynamics, I think, can create some yeah, supply. And it,
3: yeah, and in some ways, kind of gold's been under that uh, similar regime where gold's taxed like a collectible. And so in some ways, it doesn't have the same uh, tax treatment as a commodity. Uh, and so, yeah, you could have these kind of Bitcoin-specific or crypto-specific taxes that make it, it's like, okay, you can still own it. We're not going to get so draconian that we're going to ban, you know, bits uh, but we're gonna, you know, uh, just make it owners to hold. And in some ways, you know, uh, the fact that it's taxed like a commodity, you know, is tricky because a lot of these payment systems want to use Bitcoin, uh, but then technically you're you're exposed to, you know, uh, capital gains or losses uh, on these on these transactions. And so, uh, basically, there are there is a lot of work to do uh, for these regulators to kind of, you know, how they want to uh, kind of uh, open that up in the tax code, either to make it easier for innovation. Or to clamp down on it if they want to make it less attractive,
2: yeah I wonder Lynn if you also might um you, you wrote a great article on addressing the Ponzi scheme that the you know uh, aspect of Bitcoin. I wonder if you might just uh, give us a quick summary of that as well,
3: yeah, so basically there you know there's a the common argument that that bitcoin's a Ponzi scheme because if if you buy into it later uh you know uh you you get you're not as beneficial as people that bought into it earlier. Uh, And so I I just kind of walked through that a couple different steps. So one is I brought up the SEC's definition of of a Ponzi scheme and and kind of what some of the red flags are. And I walked them through to see if they apply to Bitcoin more than anything else. And, you know, the short answer is not really. Um, So what's interesting is if you look at a lot of these other digital assets, uh, they are somewhat Ponzi-like in nature often because they'll – you know the founders and the initial investors will get a lot of the tokens, and then they'll sell tokens, and then it, it doesn't look great. It, 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 even though in some ways it's, it's really not that different from a startup, uh, but at least the, you know the optics sometimes aren't great. Uh, whereas with Bitcoin, uh, you know the whoever Satoshi Nakamoto was, whether it's a, a him or a group or, or we don't know, uh, they put out the white paper first, uh, and then they talked about it on on you know forums. They talked about it on an email lists. Then they released it. Uh, and they didn't give themselves any pre Uh and so it was kind of, in some ways, launched in the most public way possible to make it more of a protocol rather than, uh, you know, a security. Uh, and so that's why, in in some ways, that's been a more elegantly released system. And so that kind of went against some of the idea of being a Ponzi scheme. Uh, in addition, uh, you know, if you if you then classify a Ponzi scheme as being broad enough, right? So you say, okay. Ah, uh, you know, because it produces you no know, cash flows, because it has some frictional costs of being moved around, you can argue it's a Ponzi scheme. But then the problem is that that similar, you know, definition would apply to gold. It would apply to, uh, you know, these other kind of non-cash flow stores of value that have some sort of a, a frictional cost when you transact with them, uh, including, for example, beachfront property or things like that. However, uh, you know, as long as they appreciate and and are are scarce and hold their value well. Uh, you know, they, they you know, kind of benefit uh, multiple parties in there, both the buyer and the seller, as long as, you know, uh, over time, they're kind of using those assets for their needs. Uh, and so my overall view is that it, it really doesn't meet it any, any more so than other stores of value, although some of these other tokens, uh, you know, of course, uh, do meet that definition more closely.
4: The problem with the store of value argument is that the volatility of the price is such that both for from a store of value perspective and particularly for the means of payment, it does seem like it it would be a long ways off. And so uh, on on that aspect, uh, the argument that this is more of a speculative asset than anything uh, seems to 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 hold ground at least at least in the short term.
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, I've I've described it as an emerging store of value. Uh, and so if you start at zero, uh, you can't just become a store of value overnight. Uh, and so it's kind of going through that S curve of adoption. Uh, and so at first you have the the cypherpunks uh, that are they, they, they like the cryptography, they like the the kind of the, the 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 libertarian aspect of it. Then you get speculators. Then you get more tech savvy people. Uh, and then we're in the in 2020. Then you got institutions, uh, and you kind of go up the risk curve because uh, every kind of every few years gets a little bit de risked as it kind of reaches wider adoption, as we get more regulatory clarity. As it's kind of, you know, withstood different attacks or tests of time, you kind of expand a little bit more. Uh, by by many ways of measuring it, it got slightly less volatile over time, but it still is obviously quite volatile. And if you were to kind of complete that s of adoption and get more into that later phase, uh, then it becomes more like silver or more like gold in the sense that it's kind of more in a static uh, quo and it's kind of reached the adoption that it's going to have. Uh, and so I'd view it now as a, a more adventurous and a more emergent store of value, and it kind of it's because the story is kind of still playing out. But yeah, it's certainly more volatile uh, than than ones that are already established stores a value. Um As for medium of payment, one of the interesting developments we're seeing now is that you know you can use Bitcoin as a network for payments without using Bitcoin itself as a unit of account. And so, for example, we st- we see apps like Strike Global, Say, okay, we have the Bitcoin network, we have the Lightning network built on top of it, which makes it you know almost free to use. And then, okay, we can do a, a fiat to Bitcoin conversion, send Bitcoin somewhere, and then do a Bitcoin to fiat conversion on the other end. And then you have effectively a currency to currency uh, you know exchange that happened. Uh, and you can do that, for example, between dollars and euros. And you have this kind of instant final settlement. Uh, and so you're starting to see kind of innovation in the fintech space around that. And so neither party has to worry about currency risk, and the only one that has to worry about it is the intermediary that's, that's kind of converting it back and forth in, in microseconds.
2: That that's See, that's the kind of emergent phenomenon in tech that is going to be exceptional in this space that can't be known in advance.
5: What's it called? Yeah. Uh, is it called lightning? Set? Is that the…
3: Well, there's a couple of things. One is Bitcoin's the base layer, and then Lightning is a secondary layer that's built on Bitcoin that can make it so you can do uh, more and faster and cheaper transactions. Uh, kind of it kind of relies on the base layer for underlying security, and then on top of that uh, secondary foundation, uh, there are apps that use it. Uh, and so one example app would be Strike. It's, it's a company called Strike, uh, and they they've been operating in the United States, and they're starting to you know they're in beta mode. They're starting to roll out more globally. Uh, and the idea is, you know, you can have, and they've already they've already done these these various test transactions, and they're starting to kind of uh, increase the scale now, where, uh, you know, it's particularly good for uh, smaller payments. And so, if you want to send up to a thousand dollars, you can do it from phone to phone, from the United States to Europe, uh, in about a second. Uh, and so, from the company side, they're taking on kind of a you know a millisecond of risk. When they do these these conversions, uh, but overall on that scale the volatility is so low, uh, and so they're using that as kind of a payment channel. Uh, and I mean, there are some markets that benefit from that more than others. And so, for historically remittance payments, uh, for, you know, if if someone works in the United States and is from like you know an emerging market, and then they send money back to their family, that's historically been a very expensive uh, payment. Uh, that's kind of fraught with difficulties, and so that's a type of application where that can drastically cut down. Uh, the fees uh, and, and and kind of make that simpler and make that kind of uh, more decentralized. Uh, but you also can see it in, in in just overall kind of a another way of doing currency conversions by using that kind of common unit of account and kind of going around the banking system and doing it their own way. Uh, and that you know that company is kind of working through regulatory issues, uh, but overall it seems to be rolling out here in 2021. And then there's there's you know there's companies like Lightning Labs that that build tools. For lightning, that some of these other uh, app providers use, and so you have that kind of ecosystem where you have, you know, some develop apps for the public, and you have other ones develop tech for those app companies.
5: Short Western yeah, Union. I can't wait to look into that.
2: <laughs> That's not investment advice. <laughs> <laughs>
5: That's really neat. Yeah,
4: I realize yeah. we probably are running close to time for Lib, but I, I did want to get uh, your general thoughts on what an end game might be for this whole uh, uh, central bank bonanza. Potentially, MMT in there. I mean, a lot of people like to bring in the analogy with the Ford Tourney. I don't know if you subscribe to that idea as well. And I think Bitcoin and some of the other uh, Reddit Wall Street bets phenomena that we've seen of late are, are, are different uh, uh, expressions of those phenomena. So I wonder if you might comment on what you think is the, is, is, what is your base case for what we might see for the coming uh, uh, couple of years and, and where we might go from there.
3: So I think that the fourth turning is a pretty good framework to be at least aware of uh, whether or not someone subscribes to it or not. Uh, I think it's one of those things you want to be aware of it and then see whether or not it, it makes sense to you or not. And so I think there, there's a useful concept there. Uh, you know whether or not I follow it, you know, to the year, right? I I wouldn't put myself in that camp, but I think it's a it's a, a good framework to be aware of. I've also um, you know I've often described a book called Lessons of History, uh, and that's actually an older book. It was written in the '60s, uh, and they 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 Durant, kind of like, yes. And, and they kind of summarize 5,000 years of human history in about a hundred pages. Which
2: love is, that book.
3: I yeah super, that book. super dense and they have a, they have a, an economic chapter that describes kind of the same fourth turning thing you know, they kind of you have these multi-generational uh, buildups in debt and in uh, wealth concentration and usually get some sort of event either it's a revolution or it's a, it's a more mild change. Uh, and depending on how well the society navigates that, you kind of go into the next cycle. And then, you know, but a couple of generations later, it just builds back up again. And then they have another test to see how well they navigate it. Uh, and so uh, I think that's a really good framework to think about is that we're kind of like going through that where we build up a ton of debt, we build up a, a, a ton of wealth concentration. The last time we saw this sort of period in, in the United States was back in the 30s and 40s. And so, in some ways, kind of that historical period in terms of fiscal monetary policy gives us some framework to work through. And so my overall view is that we're likely to have, you know, throughout the 2020, some degree of currency devaluation. And that can take a couple of different forms. You could have high inflation uh, or you can just have persistently negative real interest rates. And so you can have, for example, 3 or 4% uh, you know, inflation, but treasury yields are held at 2%. And if for a prolonged period of time, uh, you know, cash and, and treasuries just kind of, uh, you know, fail to pay off. And the broad money goes up pretty pretty dramatically, and all those things devalue versus hard assets like whether it's gold, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's uh, high quality commodity producers like some of the Japanese trading companies or some of the American uh, equivalents. And so you know by owning those harder assets, you can generally protect yourself. Uh, but then you know what emerges politically from that is, I think, anyone's guess. Uh, and so you know overall, I, I think politics, you know, uh, you know, five to ten years from now could look quite a lot different than they look like now. I think you know. You know both major parties could somewhat restructure they kind of move around the venn diagrams of of, of you know what what different parties represent. Uh, and so I, I think you can kind of see that because especially if you look at you know the Democratic and Republican parties, they, they've had you know historical periods where they kind of you know flipped around what they stand for. Uh, and so uh, I think you can kind of see another flip happening over the course of another 10 years where, not that they flip compared to each other, but that, you know, what you define as the Democratic Party might be different than, you know, what it what it is now. And the same thing uh, for the Republican Party, where you can see that kind of both of them changing pretty substantially. That so
5: makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm, I'm just to close it off. I think it'd be great for you to sort of um, summarize for listeners, for those listeners who maybe don't want, don't have the time or expertise to to try and, and trade some of these dynamics tactically, like, if, if you have a high net worth investor or someone come to you and sort of ask you, Listen, how should I position for this strategically rather than tactically? Um, do you have any general advice or any general guidance?
3: I think an overall thing is diversification uh, with an emphasis on maybe some things that are high quality but haven't done very well over the past decade. Uh, and that would include, for example, a lot of commodities, uh, as an example, especially if you focus on. Some of the more you know lower cost producers, stronger balance sheets, things like that. Uh, in addition to you know other sectors that might have not not have done very well. Uh, and so you know rather than say having a portfolio that's like 60% S&P 500 and 40% Treasuries, like a 60-40 portfolio, I would want some U.S. equities, some some uh, you know Japanese equities, some emerging market equities, uh, some uh, uh, specifically commodity producers, some gold. Uh, you know, a little bit of Bitcoin, uh, and then some cash for any liquidity shocks that happen, any sort of like, you know, things I want to rebalance into, uh, and just kind of hold that really diverse pie, uh, because whatever you run into, you know, one of the segments of that pie might get blown up, but, you know, most of those segments should should do reasonably well over the course of a decade, and that's kind of generally how I play it, is by being more diversified uh, than kind of the standard portfolio, because there are, there are decades where that diversification really helps. Uh, and this past decade was actually a, a period where that diversification is mostly harmful. Mostly, you just mm-hmm. wanted to be in the Nasdaq and just sit in the Nasdaq for a decade, and pretty much anything you diversified into other than Bitcoin, like would have, just, you know, <laughs> reduced your Nasdaq returns. It just would have been a exact exactly <laughs> an anchor. <laughs> uh, you know, yes. whereas that, I think now we're we're probably in that in that sort of decade where that that more broadly diversified thing is more likely to pay dividends than than that kind of hyper focused you know, trend running thing.
2: Yeah. Hallelujah. Amen. Yeah. All right. Lynn, well, I think thank that's a good you place used... to close it. What
5: do yeah. you think?
4: Yeah, you've you fed so all of our biases and hopefully a lot of our <laughs> listeners' biases there. Yeah. So that, that couldn't have been better up for a close for sure. Yeah, but a really
5: interesting framework, like very comprehensive. I love the way that you tie the the micro to the macro and, and allow one to feed into the other and, and back. And uh I think you've you've offered some really like specific guidance, which I, I find really interesting, like the uh Japanese trading companies as a as a potential play on commodities or just Japanese equities in, in, in general. Um, the framework on, on on the dollar and how it impacts all these different other uh, sectors in the financial economy. So um, yeah, really interesting. I, I have to say I wasn't, I was the least familiar with with your work coming in and, and um, have learned a lot. So thank you so much.
3: Yep. Thanks so much for having me.
4: Yeah. I
2: really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks Lynn. And remember everybody, if you like what we're doing and the guests we're talking to, you got to like and share. And also lynnaldin.com, go check that out, subscribe to that. That's a huge bang for the buck. If you like the uh, hour and a half she spent with us today, there's uh, multiple hours of that on top of that on her site. So uh, thanks so much and have a great weekend.
1: Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast will be helpful to others, We would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.